Michael. Hi, Allison. And welcome to Dean's Discuss, a weekly podcast where we dive into the research that's being done by UC Davis in the College of Medicine and the College of Veterinary Medicine. You know, early on in this pandemic, uh, we thought of COVID as uh, a respiratory disease, and certainly that is one of the main symptoms on our sy symptom list uh, is a, uh, a cough, uh, and, and that certainly is very important. But interesting, over time, as we've learned the virus as it's spread around uh, vulnerable populations within the world, we're seeing the disease go in different directions in some patients, and some of those outcomes are different as well. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the expanding pathologic effects of, of COVID. So there's lots to talk about. Let's get started. Uh, you mentioned um, the lung disease. So let's start there. Originally, um, people were getting put on ventilators and you know that's kind of changed somewhat. You don't hear as much about that, although there still are many people in the ICU with prolonged courses. But uh, the lung disease is not just the only thing that we're, we're seeing. That's right. And, uh, you know, we knew that uh, these viruses, these are called coronaviruses. And in animals, uh, they have a full range of diseases and respiratory diseases is prominent in um, coronaviruses that are specific to other species, such as chickens, which have an, a disease called infectious bronchitis, you know, part of the respiratory symptoms. That chickens? Chickens, chickens get bronchitis? My goodness, they I didn't do. know that. And uh, it's very, actually, a very uh, bad disease in chickens, uh, which we vaccinate for, like we talked about uh, last time uh, on our last podcast. And, uh, but respiratory disease, but also other types of diseases we see in animals, gastrointestinal diseases that we see in uh, species ranging from uh, really horses to, to, to cattle. And so we know that there's a, a range of pathologic effects in animals with coronaviruses. So it's not too surprising that in addition to respiratory disease, the primary sort of presenting complaint, that now we're starting to see populations with other types of uh, diseases. So uh, what are some of those other symptoms that we're seeing with uh, COVID-19, Allison? Well, one thing before we leave the respiratory, I just want to make absolutely sure that everybody realizes that when you are a smoker or vaping or have chronic lung disease, you're at significantly more increased risk of significant side effects of uh, COVID-19, and that's the lung disease. So we, I just don't want to let anything pass. If I can tell people, do not smoke and do not vape, and if you do, stop. Yeah. because coronavirus is not going to go away. And that is one absolutely thing that puts you at more risk. Um, you ask about the other symptoms, and I think we're seeing a myriad of symptoms, you know, GI symptoms, malaise, or, or feeling weak or fatigued. And, you know, it's really astounding the severity and minimal side effect, minimal symptoms people have, and then the severe side effects. And of course, I'm a neurologist, and um, early on, people talked about stroke associated. And it turns out that the, the virus does give people uh, increased risks of, of blood clots, which is quite significant. Yeah, and these, uh, as you mentioned, several important things, uh, the, the comorbidities, as we call them, are the factors that may complicate the, the clinical or your reaction to the virus infection and smoking and the respiratory and vaping and, and uh, especially in the young are really cofactors that can cause that. 
one of the interesting things that was discovered early on, um, the virus was very extensively studied, sequenced, and, and we knew how it attached to cells early on. And the receptor for the virus, where it gets into the cell, makes a big difference. And so how did a virus that uh, normally these range of coronaviruses only cause common cold. So they, we know in humans, for example, they're circulating other coronaviruses that we commonly deal with because they cause very mild respiratory conditions. This virus changed its landscape by altering slightly the way it got into cells. And that's through a receptor called ACE2. And that's a receptor that has important functions within our own bodies. Uh, it's there for a reason. It's there to signal our bodies about blood pressure and how we regulate blood pressure. But the virus, being viruses and how tricky they are, and that's why I love to study them, uh, but they, they get into the cell via these receptors. And fortunately, at the same time, they can also alter the cell's response. And you know, when they alter the receptor, they're saying to the cell, we're gonna signal differently or we're gonna cause inflammation. And that inflammatory response that that we have, which is to protect us, can sometimes harm us as well. And you mentioned a very important complication, stroke, as because of that. A lot of the complications that we see are the immune response against it. So Allison, when, as a clinician, and you're on the front lines, you know, you're as a neurologist, but your other uh, folks within your teams, when they see that, what are some of the responses or what are some of the other treatments that they might to, to have anti-inflammatory type adjunct therapy against the virus? Of course, there are studies out there with dexamethasone, and that, that is interesting because, you know, it is an anti-inflammatory, it's a steroid. Um, but I think that, you know, right now people are treating the stroke, for example, uh, we've made many advances over the last couple of years in stroke. And so those kinds of things are being treated with conventional therapies. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, I suspect that when we look back, we will realize how much we didn't know about this virus and how much we learned over the last couple of years. Because um, I think before, no one would have thought that uh, hypercoagulable things like stroke, where your blood sticks together more often, um, there are um, reports out of people having what we call encephalopathy, which is a, a long term for essentially kind of a confused state in the brain. Um, I, there are reports of people having longer recovery times, and so rehabilitation is going to be really key for some of these people, particularly when you've been in the ICU for a long time. We just know that your muscles and nerves don't work as well when you've been in a, on your back on a ventilator for weeks. Mm -hmm. So it, there's a lots of things. And then you mentioned um, earlier something about cardiac disease. And so um, there are, I think our reports out, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, the cardiologists in the literature are starting to see, and you know, it makes sense because anytime you damage uh, an organ such as the, the pulmonary system or the lung, you're gonna have uh, complications with other organs that depend upon circulating of the blood. And of course, that's the heart and the vascular system. So it could be through damage directly, as you mentioned, that causes blood clotting, but also it could be those clots uh, lodge in, in places that you know, cause the blood not to flow as properly, and that includes the heart. And so cardiologists are now aware um, that if a patient reports that they've recovered from 
the initial respiratory infections, they want to monitor those for other things as well, including cardiovascular disease. You know, I, I think it's really also important that we think about that um, when, we, when we approach treatment of these diseases, that we do monitor all of these other symptoms and monitor in populations what's happening. Unfortunately, we're seeing an increase in um, death rates um, across the country and across the world that may be associated with COVID, but haven't been necessarily attributed to that. And that's because patients with diabetes, uh, for example, or uh, things that, that may complicate them for any other types of other diseases are certainly contributing to a more severe uh, COVID-19. So when we're looking at vulnerable populations, and we know that this virus and this infection is disproportionately affecting uh, people that are really on the front lines, but also disproportionately affected in that people that aren't necessarily uh, used to going to the hospital and or don't have the means to go to the hospital or don't have insurance and therefore may have some of these what we call comorbidities. So diabetic patients, you know, it's very important that they uh, be very careful. And as you mentioned, uh, the simplest things that we can do are physical distancing and masks and and try to prevent the infection in the first place, but certainly those vulnerable populations, including the elderly, uh, because of the, the normal things that we know can happen in those populations, are critically important that we monitor the infection. And that's why nursing homes have been such a focus of uh, trying to prevent COVID from getting in because of that, those same comorbidity factors. Yes, and I think um, the the focus on the nursing homes has been really key. But you know, there's a lot of talk now in the press about children, and um, of course, this whole issue about returning to school and children getting infected. And I think you know there was a a, a, a thing out there where people were saying that kids couldn't get it, and I think that that's been shown now not to be not to be true at all. Kids can get it, although they may develop the symptoms differently um, and may not have those severe respiratory, but we're seeing um, the kids with uh, immune reactions and stuff. As a virologist, what do you make about that, about children being different in, instead in, in these adults? I think one of the things we have to think about um, that, you know, we react differently. And when I say we, I mean, really talking about animals from uh, all of the other factors. So age being one of those, you know, when we're born, our immune system is still learning uh, and it's, it's educating itself as it runs across um, different antigens in the environment. It's been shown, for example, that, that kids that are, that are raised in real, quote, sterile environments have actually sometimes uh, a more severe reaction to allergens later in life. So because we know that people are in a full range of different environments and have these other types of factors such as age or they may have diabetes, we have to understand that viruses are gonna do their thing. They're, they're gonna go in and they're gonna find their receptor and they're gonna replicate. But in the course of that, the host plays a big role in that. So when we teach um, the effects of viruses and I taught for many years uh, virology classes, and we talk about the virus and all the parts and pieces and how it replicates, but we also talk about host factors. And the host can determine the disease outcome. And in the case of children, as you mentioned, 
uh, we have seen different effects, uh, as you mentioned. One of those was a vascular effect in some children, which caused their legs to swell and they, they developed very uh, severe disease, which was very reminiscent of other diseases in children, some of which are called Kawasaki's for the first person to describe some of those vascular diseases. So we saw some of that. And I think that's the importance of frontline clinicians uh, because frontline clinicians, uh, in our case, our primary care veterinarians are some of the first to see new diseases and report new syndromes. And one thing that I, I think it's really important for people to understand at an academic medical center such as UC Davis, our clinicians on the front lines from the emergency room to the, to, to the wards um, are looking for symptoms and they're monitoring those and they're seeing new things with uh, COVID-19. Certainly respiratory is the primary, but they're monitoring for other things. And then what's really interesting is that comes up with new theories about, well, if it is a vascular disease, right. you mentioned stroke, maybe there's ways that we can take advantage of our knowledge of treating stroke because you know th that's a, a really important point that you made because there's so many new therapies that we now know that can prevent or treat and um, lessen the time that a, a patient is suffering from a condition like stroke. So if you see that happening, they can use those same type of therapies to intervene. So you are absolutely right on. And um, my own personal research actually comes out of a patient who walked into an emergency room in Indiana and someone said, I've never seen this before. Mm -hmm. This is something different. And it turned out to be indeed something different and now affected thousands of people worldwide. Um, that was from a gene. We're talking about a virus. I think that one of the reasons that academic health systems like UC Davis are so important is they're on the front line and they're putting together the pieces of the puzzle. That's what I like to say about neurology. Mm -hmm. It's taking the pieces of the puzzle. It's taking the history from the patient, the history from the family, the neurologic disease, examination of the patient and putting it all together and putting together that puzzle. And that's what clinicians have done so well with COVID. They put together the puzzles and you know it was those people who said, wow, you know, these children are getting this disease. It looks like Kawasaki, but not quite. Or these folks who have had uh, COVID also are having increased strokes. Um, it is the frontline physicians who are talking in real time and actually getting things out amongst themselves even before things are published. And just the evolution of how ventilator management has changed over time in patients with COVID in frankly six months. I mean, we have only had COVID in Sacramento since February 26th and is now into the fall. And so we have learned so much. Just think about what has come about. We have a approved drug, remdesivir. We know about dexamethasone. We have two national uh, vaccine trials underway. Um, incredible speed at which knowledge is being generated and transmitted. And again, now you can see things, they aren't even getting published. I mean, they're online and, and, and some of them are not even getting peer reviewed. The amount of information that's coming out is incredible. So 
kudos to all those doctors, nurses, staff members, students, residents who are in the front lines and who are taking the bits of the puzzle and putting them together. And that's why we're learning so much more about COVID. It's not just a respiratory disease. Yeah, and one of the interesting parts of that in an academic uh, setting is really learning from different disciplines as well. And and one of the uh, the interesting parts for us as veterinarians and are you know, uh, interested in these uh, same infections is that many of these were known for decades before in animals. And so what we've learned from the literature about animal diseases from AIDS to coronaviruses, many times those are in the literature as well. And certainly it was true with COVID, as I mentioned, with coronaviruses being infected a wide range of species, and we can learn from that. And also on the therapy side, remdesivir was you know, attempted right. and published on several years ago uh, against a cat disease called feline infectious peritonitis. And Dr. Niels Peterson here, who's one of the, the people that discovered some of these original viruses in cats, has been very interested in therapeutic intervention. And so he was able to collaborate early on. And so several years ago, published on the effectiveness of these to treat uh, infected cats for feline infectious peritonitis. But it, that disease is actually a coronavirus that cats carry. It's unique to cats. It doesn't transmit to, to humans. Uh, so there's not any worry about that. But in terms of its disease symptoms, and that's another thing that we see, the coronaviruses in cats, for example, is an inflammatory disease. When cats die from it, it's because of the immune response. And, and part of this is um, antibodies that are formed that are non-protective um, are produced in the body and in these cats and they lodge in vessels and they cause uh, inflammation. And a lot of these cats die of the inflammatory response. So some of the same therapies that are effective in animals uh, can be shown to be infective and disavere uh, was a good example of that. And so while the research is going on on the um, front lines in the clinic, clinics uh, in our hospitals, uh, behind the scenes are many that are continuing to understand. And the more uh, disciplines we bring to an important public health problem uh, in UC Davis through its One Health approach, where we really think about uh, the full range of ideas one of the things that, that I'm really excited about and that has been developed at UC Davis is new uh, technologies to detect um, damage in the body. And one of those is the Explorer Unit, That's which was right. developed in collaboration with the School of Medicine this, and the College of Engineering and the School of Veterinary Medicine. And the Explorer is a positive emission tomography or a PET scanner, but it's really cutting edge because it does the whole body with less radiation, so you get to scan the whole body. And these types of technologies are critical when we're looking at a disease like COVID that may affect multiple body systems. So, uh, you know, that I know is uh, a very important success story of that collaboration uh, here at UC Davis. So, you know, you mentioned the Explorer, and one of the things also at UC Davis is we have a really robust artificial intelligence machine learning uh, capability. And, you know, one of the things I think that's going to come out of the COVID um, 
pandemic is taking these bits and pieces of information and then helping to use AI, artificial intelligence to, to more rapidly put those together um, and, and begin to think about what do, what do models look like. Um, I like to talk about predictive analytics using data mm -hmm. to predict the, the future. Um, so, you know, it's, it's truly been uh, an integration across the campus, across the disciplines, and certainly across the colleges. And everybody is kind of focused on that. And I think that really comes to light in the town halls that we've been having. I think we're on our 19th weekly town hall uh, where we bring together uh, researchers from all the disciplines and all parts of the campus to talk about COVID. And um, we funded some pilot grants out of that, 300,000. And I think the, so far UC Davis has about 6 million in research funding that's come to us because of COVID. That's a really important point. There are teams of people that are, that are collecting the data behind the scenes. And these data scientists are, uh, which is a campus-wide uh, initiative uh, to look at the data within our hospital record systems and analyze those because those can detect. And then, as you mentioned, then predictive algorithms uh, to say if these patients have a certain set of symptoms or this clinical data can put together, we can predict uh, in the future. And one of the things we ought to think about talking about maybe in a future podcast is how we're using predictive technologies, mathematical modeling, I know here at uh, the School of Veterinary Medicine within our One Health Institute, we're very excited because of new funding to really uh, expand that into what we call epidynamic disease centers, which is a way to say how we use that modeling to take all of that data on a population base around the world to say if things change, it, we can predict uh, where a new virus or a new disease may be happening. So, you know, a subject maybe for a future podcast. That's a great idea. You know, Michael, this has been a great discussion. I think please join us next week when we'll talk more about our understanding and combating COVID-19. And I'm Michael Lermore, Dean of the School of Veterinary Medicine here at UC Davis. And you've been listening to Dean's Discuss COVID-19 podcast. Please um, be sure to subscribe so you listen to our podcast and, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. And I'm Allison Brashear, Dean of UC Davis School of Medicine. We welcome your questions and your ideas for future topics. You can email us at deansdiscuss.ucdavis.edu. And in the meantime, you can visit ucdavis.edu backslash COVID-19 for the coronavirus research news from UC Davis. And we'll see you next week. <music>